Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Anthony Giordano. Anthony serves as vicar at Calvary Lutheran Church in East Meadow, New York. He has an MDiv from Liberty Theological Seminary. He has four children and two cats. It's his first time on the show. As a guest, I give you Anthony Giordano. Anthony, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for uh, for having me on. As as they say in sports talk radio, uh, first time, long time. Yeah, first time, long time. Yeah, I, I said that once called Howard Stern, and I said that first time, long time. Uh, yeah, no, you you've uh, you're a listener, and we've connected. You found the podcast through Ken Tanner, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ken, uh, we were both in the uh, in the Charismatic Episcopal Church for a long time, and uh, I uh, I actually have uh, I think I only met him once. Uh, probably about uh, about twenty years ago, um, but he and I still remain connected on Facebook, and he's just a fantastic guy. And uh, he he posted one of one of your podcasts, and I just absolutely fell in love with it and started listening to it every week. Social media changes our lives. It's so, so amazing how you have these people that you become friends with before you even meet them. It's amazing. Yeah, before, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you are on Long Island, coming to us from Long Island, and you are a Lutheran pastor and. On, on Long Island, I am. Yeah, technically, I'm a I'm a vicar, um, which means I'm a pastor in training. Uh, I I came to them. Uh, I didn't do. Uh, I didn't go through a Lutheran seminary, and so I'm in what's called the colloquy process. I'll be done with that hopefully by the end of the year, God willing, and then I'll be ordained ordained and installed here uh, in December. Do you ever see the bagel bus guy on Long Island out there? He's like four foot eleven and starts fights with people. Have you seen oh, no, but I've seen the video. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I, keep, gosh. I keep looking for him whenever I go to the bagel store. I'm hoping to run into him. You need to save his soul, brother. I mean, he's, I, uh, he's, <laughs> he's, he's got a lot of anger issues, and he'd be a great convert. If he had that kind of zeal for Jesus, imagine that. So our first reading today comes from the book of Jeremiah, the second chapter, verses 4 through 13. And it's almost like sort of a, a, the literature here, the literary format is almost like a sort of courtroom case here, you know, yeah. where God is saying, hey, you know, what wrong did your ancestor fi- ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things? And and they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? Uh, you know, that basically we have a kind of laying out of Israel's idolatry of how they they basically switch. I love that that there's towards the end of the text. It's almost like has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not. It's like nobody changes like teams like this. Like you know, nobody. It's like people don't become like Giants fans, the Eagles fans. Like people just don't do this. But you've done this, and we've got to have a reckoning here, right? You have this this this, this significant reckoning that has to be had here, right? That that Jeremiah is sort of is uh, delivering this word. Yeah, it's really it's 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 crazy because not only did does he say uh, that the people didn't ask where is the Lord, but also the priests did not ask where is the Lord. So it's it's a it's a condemnation of of both the people and the and the leadership. 
and uh, you know, and, and God attacks it on these these different fronts, right? He talks about the worthless idols, and he talks about this this you know changing you know changing teams kind of you know have they exchanged their gods and like you said, I mean nobody nobody becomes a, a Yankee fan after being a Met fan. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, yeah, which and you know every once in a while, when was the has there ever been a Subway series? That's what everybody roots for, right? Yeah, for a, for a World Series. Yeah, yeah. that was in that was 2000. Right? 2000. Yeah, I remember there was one, right? That were yeah, but yeah, yeah nobody the, switches over. No, nobody switches over, and and it's you know, and God is it, it, it's it's almost a mocking tone when you when you read it, you know. Uh, <laughs> my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. You know, what, what is that about? You know, what, what has happened here? Yeah. It's interesting too, because Jeremiah is carrying out his ministry in the, you know, from like the six twenties to like the five eighties in the Southern kingdom. And this is like his earliest preaching during the reign of, of King uh, Josiah. And, you know, you have this, it, it, you have this tradition where Josiah um, instigates this covenant renewal. Uh, but he's talking about the time, I guess, like where, you know, uh, where the, the stuff before that, which he kind of uh, roots out, like Jeremiah probably participated in this, right? He was probably one of these people that saw how bad the apostasy was, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he's trying to, trying to write the ship, but it's, it's like the Titanic. Yeah, and it's interesting too that that you that you almost become like we become like what we worship, right? And so you you know the the Israelites. It's funny because both Jeremiah and Hosea, the prophet, seem to look at like the wilderness time as the honeymoon period between the Lord and Israel. Not that there weren't problems, but relatively better than when they get in the land, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's so then, weird. And then it's sort of like once they have the land. It's sort of like, what have you done for me lately? And, you know, they, they, you know, they're, they're looking for fertility in the land and, and they become, they start worshiping the Baals and, and things like this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the, you know, this, it's the temptation that all of us face, right? Is the, do we cling to, and I, and I use this in quotes that, you know, the old stories, or do we, do we seek after the things that are present and immediate to us? You know, and this is the, this is the, 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 the distractions that just cause us to, to drift from the path. And it's, it's just, it's too easy. It's too easy to do. The, the distractions are present and they're, in some cases, they're tactile. And it's just easier for people to relate to those things than, you know, the stories of God, you know, from Exodus uh, happening hundreds of years earlier. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like the point you made too that the priests participate in this, the clergy are not part of the solution. They're part of the problem. And we often see this right in the church where whether it's some sort of political program or whether it's some sort of right wing to do list or left wing to do list or something like some sort of thing, maybe it's uh, making America great again or prosperity stuff. If you just, you know, think, think optimistically and everything will go great or whatever it is these things can sort of take the place of, the proclamation of the living water, right? You know, that we still forsake the living water. Jesus says that himself for broken cisterns. Yeah. So they're exactly right at the end there. It's, and it's so, it's such a start, a, um, a striking image that um, he says uh, they have dug their own cisterns, you know, broken cisterns that cannot hold water, digging, digging their own, doing it on their own. 
Um, and, and yeah, that stuff is just, is so dangerous, uh, to us as a people. But then, you know, we've got John four, which is the, you know, that's the lesson for us, right? The spring of, of water gushing up to eternal life. And that's what we're missing out on when we're busy digging our own wells that can't even hold water. Yeah. I think of like the, the illusion in my mind, I go to the Babel where they say, you know, let us build a name for ourselves up to, you know, let's build this up to heaven to, to, to take a name or make a name versus receive the name, you know, that, that you can make your own cistern that doesn't hold water, or you can go to, you know, you can stop our own self-salvation projects and go to the living water. Right. And that's the, and that's the, the danger, uh, you know, not only in the, you know, in the political realm or the social realm, but also in the church itself where we, you know, we, we, uh, will strive for this works righteousness instead of understanding that it's, it's what Jesus has done for us, not anything that we can do. This water world that we all know puts on an awesome show of water. H2O. That's water. H2O. On to the book of Hebrews. We have uh, Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 8, and then 15, 16. This is exhortation to let mutual love continue, not to, to, not to neglect uh, the strangers. I mean, there's this sort of exhortation, encouragement to hospitality. Uh, and then, you know, there's this... Uh, there's this exhortation to say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Uh, and yeah, so this is this kind of conclusion. The last passage from the last Sunday was this idea that you've come to this, uh, you've come to not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Jerusalem, to the festal gathering, the assembly, of the firstborn. And this is sort of working out of that. This is, this is sort of what the, uh, if that's the indicative, that's where you are. This is the imperative that flows from it. Yeah, it's such a it, it's such a challenging passage for me. I I've been reading it for the past week, and and it's just it's it's so hard. You know, hospitality is is difficult because it it calls us to to invite people into our homes, into our lives, who we are not perhaps naturally inclined to uh, be in relationship with. Yeah, and I think that's hard in especially in, in America, American culture increasingly, because people, I mean, we're just, we just don't know our neighbors as much very often. I mean, it's very often in many parts of the country, we are, we are not sort of open to spontaneous exchange with those who are coming across our paths. And so it's almost like we live lives that preclude hospitality. <laughs> like we've, we insulate ourselves from it. Right. Oh, yeah. No, we absolutely do. In fact, I'm I'm in the middle of this uh, this great book right now uh, called Unoffendable uh, by Brant Hansen, and uh, Brant has um, Aspergers, and he he was talking about uh, there was a family in the in the apartment complex that had uh, a young family that had lost a wife and and mother. And it was completely against everything in him to go and to reach out to that that widower, and um, and yet he did that. But he he actually portrays himself as standing on the stoop and staring at the doorbell for a while before he rings it. Um, so the you know the hospitality is is not just us you know inviting people in, but it's also going out to the neighbors, to the people that we wouldn't ordinarily associate with, uh, the people who who may look funny or act funny to us and try to embrace them and welcome them into our lives. 
Yeah, it's funny because I think if you look at the Gospels and just casually peruse them, you see a Jesus who seeks out difficult people. You know, you look at God's relationship with Israel. God seeks out difficult people. Whereas we seem to do everything we can to isolate ourselves, so, you know, to ensure that we don't, you know, like you see that person in the grocery store, all of a sudden you get so interested in reading the back of cereal boxes. So they're gay, <laughs> because of me yours, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah, there are lots of times where I've ducked and dodged, uh, from people who I didn't want to talk to when I was in the mall or the grocery store or whatever. And it's, it's the complete opposite. I mean, I, I understand that maybe you just want to get through the store or whatever, but the truth is, is that we're called to, to be with those people, to, to put it in, in terms of now. And, you know, it's just the ministry of being with someone. I think you could read this passage in a way that, I mean, this is the challenge, right? With the lectionary, you always have to sort of put the con- these readings in wider context. And I think if, if people don't know the book of Hebrews that well, that, you know, this can sound like just this sort of, all right, pull up your bootstraps and, and, and get out there and live some Christian kindness. But yet yeah, there's this high Christology that one of the passages that the, le- the lectionary omits here in this reading is in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And that's so interesting because it's like the key to, you know, in the previous passage, he sort of almost lays out this contrast between, the, you know, the, the shakable life, the shakable foundations and the unshakable foundation. And then the way that you're hospitable, the way that you're welcoming the, the other and the way that you hold to the truth is by continually going to Jesus. You're going to the crucified Jesus, the one outside the camp. And it's, it's through him. It's not this thing we're doing. God's done his thing. Now we do our thing. It's that we're sanctified by faith just as much as justified by it. And so we, we, you know, that this is, it's by, it's in going to Jesus that we, that we find ourselves spilling out and going, going to the other that needs hospitality. Yeah. And we, and we find that Jesus outside the city gate. He's outside the city. Um, and this is, you know, when you're talking about that sanctification process, the, the readings from this past weekend where Jesus is talking about the fire, you know, that's, that's not necessarily a pleasant process for us, but it's a, it's a necessary process to, to further get us to move in the directions that we need to move and to, and to burn away the sin that, that encumbers us, that prevents us from going outside the gate. Yeah. And, you know, I, I quote Eugene Peterson this all the time. He says, you know, Christian discipleship is focusing more and more on Christ's righteousness and less and less on our own. So I love that. You can kind of miss that without that little verse that it emits that, that, you know, this reminder that, you know, the one whose blood speaks a better word than the one of Abel, you know, this one who who's crucified outside the camp, he's the one who is the source of our life and, and the sort of, you know, that the, the, the Christian life is sort of the wake of, uh, of us, of the ship, you know, sailing towards Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. It's, it's uh, the, the, the longer and longer I go through this life with, with Christ, the more and more parts of my, my old self are burned away. And I find myself, uh, you know, now at 
almost unrecognizable to where I was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting because that sort of transformation, it's often something that's more received than achieved, right? You, you, you notice, you know, it, 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 it's like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? <laughs> Complete, completely received, completely received and received in, in unexpected ways and in ways that I could never have possibly predicted. On to the Gospel of Luke. Here we have this great story where you have Jesus going into the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat on the Sabbath, and they're watching him closely, and he notices how the when the people choose the places of honor, uh, he says, look, you know, when you're at the wedding banquet, you don't want to sit at the top spot unless you get bumped. So better off, like, better go into coach that you're put into first class you know, <laughs> rather than, you know, try to sneak into first class. Right. So uh, and then, you know, he also says that when you give you know, lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives, but uh, who, you know, they'll repay you. Uh, you know, when you give a banquet, give invite the poor, the crippled, the lame. And you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. So it's a very challenging passage because it seems to go so counter to the way we just live our lives again, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And it's it, you know it's it's so funny because I was I was very very challenged by this text, but then I you know thankfully I read uh, I read Capon, who, uh, <laughs> always a good one. <laughs> who's, who says this is the way to destroy a dinner party? Right. <laughs> invite <laughs> invite these people. <laughs> Right, right, right. Exactly it is, right? It, it is simply a formula for ruining an evening. Guests chosen only because they won't invite you to their house in return are less than likely to be scintillating dinner company. <laughs> hey, yeah, it's so interesting because because uh, Miroslav Wolf in uh, – in, I forget what, where, where, this, where this is, what book this is. It might be free of charge uh, – he talks about how there are three types of human interactions, right? There's, if I take from you without any compensation, that's theft, right? And then if I, if I, normally we're in the level of not theft, but exchange where, you know, I, I try to give you goods for, for goods in exchange or money for goods or something. And you know what? Even if I think I got a good deal, usually you don't feel robbed. Like usually, you know, the, the, we're in some degree of exchange, uh, and then he thinks that in contrast to theft or exchange, there's the gift, which is unilateral. Well, I'm giving you something and receiving nothing in exchange. And then he says on the relational level, the, the, the parallels are like revenge is like theft. If, if you, you know, if you've wounded me, and I, I want to take back and I don't care how much I, you know, how much more I exact on you. Justice is about, it's somehow parallel, right? We're seeking somehow to balance and redress the the wrong, and then he thinks forgiveness is parallel to the gift. And I, I remember my aunt, she, my aunt Edie. She was a very well liked woman, and, and around Christmas time, she would have this this closet full of like kind of unisex gifts, so that when somebody came over and brought her a gift, oh, I have your gift right here, because she always 
was suspicious that the gift was really an exchange. And so she, you know, and so how often though are gifts really exchanges, right? And so I like what Capon's saying because he's saying this is really at the level of gift as opposed to so often our invitations are exchanges, right? Like, well, I've done this so that you'll give me this and I'm, I'm scratching your back so you'll scratch mine, right? And Jesus is talking about living at the level of gift, right? Because this is the, where the resurrection righteousness is. It's, it's living in giftedness. So like, <laughs> it's living from in reception of the gift. And I and I still I still wrestle with I I don't fully understand why it makes me so uncomfortable when people give me gifts. It's it's amazing to me. I I wrestle with it on the God level. I wrestle with wrestle with it on the human level too. And and being a, in a position of leadership in a church, people will give you gifts from time to time, and it 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 makes me uncomfortable. I feel I feel like I want to be on that on that level playing field with them, and I want it to be an exchange, and it's not. And, and everything about my relationship with God is not on a level playing field. It's not an exchange. It's, it's all about what he's done. It's all about his gift. And it's just, it's very difficult for me to, to accept that. I, it's, it's a conscious decision to, to try to, uh, to accept it gracefully and joyfully. And, and I want to do for him as a result. It's interesting too. I think about like how it's difficult to receive a gift. I also think it's incredibly difficult to receive a compliment because at that point you are, you are letting another person define you. You are giving up control of your story to the person. And so very often it's so hard to say thank you uh, because when somebody compliments you and you receive it, you, you, you've allowed them to sort of shape your story. And I think it's an incredibly vulnerable thing, you know, to be complimented and to receive it well, you know? Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing with gifts can be very hard to receive, uh, but then when they're received well, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. And it's, you know, it's funny that you mentioned compliments because it's, uh, you know, a person is saying something that's very kind or very flattering to you. You know, why, why would I want to take control of that narrative because the narrative that I, you know, will oftentimes speak to myself is negative. <laughs> and the narrative of the other person is very positive. Right, right, exactly. Right, I, I know. But it's, sometimes it's rather, we'd rather have a sort of, this is why I think it's so interesting because to be forgiven allows, it requires someone else to, you know, open your story to someone else. But to condemn yourself, you don't need anybody but yourself. Like self-condemnation, right? It's a much... So at least you have control. I mean, it might not be, it might not be, the, the end might not seem that great, but at least, you know, you have some control over yourself, which, Yeah, you know. maybe that's it. Maybe it comes down to a control issue. Maybe yeah. it's, it's not, you know, I, I'm, I'm more comfortable being in control than allowing the conversation to be, you know, in the hands of that other person or allowing the conversation to be in God's hands where, you know, he's loving me with an unconditional love and the other person is giving me a compliment that, that I feel I don't deserve or whatever it is. Maybe I just need to release that control. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's very, that's very true. The other thing that's interesting that the lectionary omits is that in between this, these parables, there's this healing on the Sabbath, right? And, and it, he's the second, and previously he's healed, someone's been healed, it's that woman, and this time it's a man, and then, uh, it, and, and sort of the context for this, this sort of exchange is that they are kind of spurious about him healing on the Sabbath, 
Yeah, it's you know it's so bizarre to me also that that he was even there in the first place. Um, you know why is he at a dinner with the Pharisees? You know why are they inviting him? I would think that they would reject him, but it's it, his relationship with them was very nuanced. Um, but he, yeah, he there's this weird sort of you know healing that happens that is is glossed over by the lectionary that I don't know why that is. Um, and he, you know, he, he heals the man and sends him on his way. And it's, it's, and their response was to remain silent when he did that. Yeah. And, and cause he, yeah, cause he asked them, is it lawful to do this? You know, they're watching and he asked them if it's lawful and they just don't. Yeah. And yeah, Peter Lightheart, who's one of my favorite commentators on his blog, I, I found this last week actually. He says about this, about the healing, he says in 14.5, Jesus makes the curious reference to a son who falls into a well or pit or cistern. Practically, of course, he's pointing out that no one would wait until after the Sabbath to rescue uh, one in that condition. But oddness of the oddness of the picture gives pause. Several things come to mind. Joseph is a son who is put into a pit by envious brothers and is brought out not to enjoy rest, but to be sold into slavery. Jeremiah, too, is put down into a pit and drawn back up. And the next chapter, Jerusalem falls and Judah is taken away into captivity. In both cases, apparently the man rescued from the pit is a foreshadowing of the eventual rescue of Israel from the pit of captivity, their eventual resurrection and restoration to Sabbath prosperity in the land. So with this in the background, Jesus' little parable symbolizes his entire ministry. He has to come bring Sabbath. That is, he has to come draw out all Yahweh's sons from the pit to draw out out the ox of the priestly people from the well of exile. Jesus, of course, fulfills this in his going into the earth and his return from under the earth. Also, in both the story of Joseph and that of Jeremiah, the text makes it clear that there's no water in the pit. Being drawn out of the pit is thus connected with receiving refreshment and slaking thirst. So perhaps the parable of the rescued son is more appropriate to a man being healed of dropsy than it first appeared to be. Along these lines, it's intriguing that the father does not rescue his son from the pit on the Sabbath day but waits until the day after the Sabbath. So interesting, right? Like, uh, it's, you know, that Jesus is sort of not rescued on the, on the Sabbath so that we can really be brought into the Sabbath. Yeah, and he, t- he tells the story to, you know, people who in short order are going to put him into the well. They're going to put him into the pit. And they're they're not going to come after him. They're not going to seek him out. And yet he is a, he is a son of Israel. Yeah, absolutely. But they're just—they're not going to do that. They're going to—you know—they're going to think that doing so was actually something righteous. Although I—I I wonder if—if if some of them, being that he was invited to dinners and stuff, I wonder if some of them had second thoughts about that. If they really felt that he got a raw deal. Yeah, it's interesting because he does seem to be invited to places, and 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 yet he seems to like—he seems like Capon says he seems to ruin uh, many dinner parties. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, you know, the, the Pharisees had, you know, one or two times they had warned him. I think some of them genuinely cared for him, that they, they warned him that Herod was looking to kill him and things like that. And so it's, uh, uh, it's like I said, it's a nuanced relationship. Yeah, but one thing assures he does not ruin the Lord's Day when he's proclaimed. And he, uh, he, he is the host that invites us, uh, you know, happier us are we who are called to his supper and, and hear and happier those who hear him proclaim. So blessings to you as you proclaim the word. And thank you for doing this, Anthony. No, thank you so much, brother. This is a pleasure. I hope, uh, you know, I get invited back. Absolutely. You definitely will. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or 
pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Anthony for coming on the podcast. And thanks again to you for listening to Snaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.